We are looking at Second Thessalonians, a very distinctive, unique book because it deals with people who are facing intense trials, facing increasing persecution, and they're demonstrating for you and for me how to be able to live within the crucible of trials that seem to come our way. Last week, we looked at verses 5 down through verse 10, didn't we? And as we did so, we were looking and examining carefully how to live for the Lord in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul presumes that you've been processing that information as he picks up on this whole matter of how to pray effectively. So to pull all this together, I want to read what we covered last week and allow for that to give perspective on what we're studying today. Because in Second Thessalonians, beginning in verse 5, of this first chapter, Paul wrote these words, that this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also are suffering, since indeed God considers it unjust to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we've got a rich, rich paradigm of how to pray. And if you struggle at times with structuring your prayers, if you find at times you're facing mental drift, you're part of the human race, and you're part of the family of faith, because we all struggle in this regard, how can we use even mental drift to better equip us to pray effectively? There's some thoughts here we can develop as we go. But first, we need to look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, I thank you for each one here. Just as the Thessalonian people had to deal with their own set of trials as they waited for the Lord's return, and somehow, someway, found them positioned between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ, so do we. We look back and we see how the penalty of sin was paid at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Then we look at the present and we consider how the power of sin is being destroyed through the work of the Holy Spirit. But then we look to the future and we consider how the presence of sin will be removed once and for all on that day. Upon the day in which Jesus Christ ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. So, Father, the penalty and the power and the presence of sin addressed thoroughly in this gospel presentation of Genesis through revelation of your word. And we praise you, Father, for the way in which you got and direct us. Now, Father, we take into account what you've got here. It's for us. It's applicable. It's relevant. What we've got to bear in mind is that this has tremendous bearing upon the way in which we are to live our lives in the here and now as we prepare for what's still to come. In these minutes together, warm these hearts and engage these minds. Shape these wills. Come here again, Father, to see Jesus and Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. During our opening years of ministry, Pam and I were, of course, positioned in Connecticut by Gad. And somewhere north of me was a pastor of another evangelical free church, Robert Bakke. Dr. Bakke later became the national director for prayer across this nation. We became good friends, and he's written a book on prayer, and he tells a particular story about his time ministering to a large gathering in Mexico City. He had been teaching on Matthew 18, verse 19, in which people are to bring their requests before God in agreement with one another. He writes, a couple of years ago, I was speaking at a conference in Mexico City, My hotel was on the ancient central square and across from the White House, as they would call it, or the old Parliament building. The church I was speaking in was on the outskirts of the city. One night I spoke on Matthew 18 and I asked each in my Mexican audience to turn, face one another, person to person. Then I asked them to hold up their hands, palms up, touch the end of their fingers to the other person's fingers as if the two of them were holding a soccer ball between them. Soccer's big in Mexico City. They all did it. And then I said, this is what Jesus is asking you corporately to do in prayer. Hold the prayer between you one another in agreement, and then give it to God. Now, the following night was my final service. But at 7 p.m., the starting time of the service, no one had picked up Sally, my wife, and I. And we sat in the lobby and waited. At 7.15, the desk clerk came to us, saying I had a phone call. I went to the desk, and our host apologetically explained that no one had been given the responsibility of picking us up. I offered to take a cab, but given the fact that I have limited Spanish, would he explain to the cab driver where I needed to go? No problem, he said. Cab driver was found. 
listened carefully to the phone directions, seemed confident, off we went. I can see Bob now. Within two minutes, I knew we were in trouble. For the next 45 minutes, we were on a wild goose chase into the seediest parts of Mexico City I had never seen before. Finally, after an hour, the cabbie was excited. We wound up at the Mormon Tabernacle. And the cabbie stopped, signaled with a relieved smile, we have arrived. And I shouted, no. An hour and many sidewalk conversations with locals later. We pulled up at the church with a dozen or so missionaries and locals out front waiting anxiously. It seems there had been a recent spate of deadly and brazen carjackings against American tourists. And my host had become fearful that we had been victimized. I was escorted quickly into the packed out service and the worship center was incredibly full of people praying. Hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of Mexicans were standing two by two, palms up, touching the ends of each other's fingers as I had instructed them the night before. They were holding my wife and me in their hands. And vigorously offering us to God an agreement that we should be delivered safely to their service. And they erupted in praise when we walked onto the platform. And the presence of the Lord was sweet and unmistakable. And they had learned a powerful lesson on agreement in prayer. For you see, as I taught from Matthew 18, the verb for agree is symphoneo, from which we get the modern word symphony involves a sense of agreement that fine music is being produced. Now what God is calling the church to do is to be in agreement with one another in prayer. It's as if a fine music is being produced. And Paul is not speaking abstractly. Paul is speaking personally. He's engaged in this. In fact, though, he leads a life, incredible life, filled with activity. His is a life that is saturated in prayer for other people. What I want to do with you is to look very carefully now at two verses. And these two verses, verse 11 and 12, are bookended by teachings on the Lord's return. Because in verse 10, it talks about when he comes on that day. In chapter 2, verse 1, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God does not want you, nor does he want me, to become passive with regard to his return, but to be proactive in applying truth to life before he returns, even in the matter of prayer. And so if we need guidance now on how to pray for others, I can't think of any better book on prayer than the Bible. And here you and I find two significant features found in Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian people that can serve as a guide to the way in which we bring prayer before God. And the first is found in verse 11. And we're going to put it like this, number one. 
that as we pray for one another, I want you to note with me the request that we ought to make. Notice in verse 11, he begins with the phrase, to this end. And you say, but Gary, to what end? Well, he has just gotten done talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So in essence, what he's saying now is in light of all this teaching with regard to the second coming of Jesus Christ, to this end, here's how I want you to pray. Here's how I pray. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. We're going to note two usages of the word may found in verse 11. They will be the means by which we understand how we bring our requests before God. The first may is embedded at the beginning of verse 11, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Notice he says, not my God. I want you to notice how collective, how corporate, how engaging a one another's sense of it all is he has with them. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. It doesn't say furthermore that our God wishes that you will make yourself worthy of his calling. This is a sovereign working of God engaging us in daily responsible actions to make certain that we are aligning ourselves to God's way and will. But you ask, but Gary, how does one go about becoming worthy in the eyes of God? I came across this several years ago. A writer, even years prior, found in an African mine, the most incredible and magnificent diamond in world's history at that point. It was presented to the King of England to blaze in his crown. We're told the king sent it to Amsterdam to be cut. It was put in the hands of an expert lapidary. Now he poses this question. And what do you suppose he did with it? Answer. The lapidary took the gem of priceless value, incomparable worth, cut a notch in it, then he struck a hard blow with his instrument, And the superb jewel lay in his hand, cleft in two. Another question. Did he do this out of recklessness or carelessness? The answer, no. Listen. For days and weeks, that blow had been planned and prepared. Drawings and models had been made of the gem, its quality, even its defects. All had been studied with minutest care, and the man to whom it was committed was one of the most skillful lapidaries in the world. Bring it home. Notice, then, that this jewel was in the hands of the expert lapidary. What did he do? He struck this stone with a hard 
low so that its worth would be revealed. Have you been struck by some hard blows in these recent days, months, or even years? Have you considered the fact that, yeah, life can be cruel, but if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, when God allows for the striking, the hard blow to take place, he does so so that the true value will be revealed. Now the Thessalonians are facing increasing persecution. Paul writes in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians about the matter of tribulation. And yet in the midst of these intense blows to their humanness, what we find is that we've got this craftsman above, this sovereign lapidary who skillfully plans from eternity past, and you and mine, places these blows strategically upon what is necessary and where it is needed so that you and I are made worthy of his calling. Now, if you would, join with me in drawing a line between verse 5 and verse 11. See the connection? This is evidence in verse 5 of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered what? Worthy. In other words, the true value is being revealed. Worthy of the kingdom of God. The sovereign lapidary is at work using the challenges and the difficulties of life to shape you into what you ought to be in preparation for where you will eventually be. And you tie that word worthy in verse 5 with what you read now in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy, you see, of his calling. Now, you get to that next phrase, and you say to yourself, okay, I want to be made worthy, but I want to be made worthy according to my scheme, my time, and my desires. And lo and behold, Paul answers in advance to your desires with these words here, that when you and I are positioned in this way to this end, we always pray for you, Paul says, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. And you pause and you reflect on that. You could see here, when you and I see the word calling, or the word call in the Bible, you've got to understand the context within which he writes. Because in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, what you will find is that there is a general calling and there is an effectual calling. The general calling is evangelistic. It's found, for example, in that parable that Jesus told, the parable of the wedding banquet, where many people are invited to the wedding banquet that a king prepares for his son. They refuse to come. 
And the word that's used here is translated as called, and it's why the parable ends, for many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 22, verse 14, speaking of the idea of the general evangelistic call. But then you tie that to the effectual call, found in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, where Paul wrote, For those God foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also what? Called. He also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And he's speaking of the future in past tense. That's how secure the believer is. In Jesus Christ. So now you and I look very carefully and we realize that when the blows of the lapidary have found us as individuals, we have got a body of believers that are praying for one another in the midst of the blows. I say, well, Gary, how do I go about doing this? Well, a personal level for me, my church directory is. It's the means I use to pray for the people of this church. And there are a lot of people in that directory. But I bring it with me to and from work. And when I'm driving, I set it next to me. So that if I'm delayed at any point along the way, go through a few more names, get to your name. I start thinking about the lapidary. And I think about the cut that's being made in your life in the midst of these weeks, months, years. I begin to pray for you, trying to make the minutes count. Now, when you and I are doing what Dr. Bakke had challenged us to do, what we will understand then is that a church that is known to care for one another is marked by being a church that truly is in prayer for one another. So whether it be your life group, life group and adult Bible fellowship, life group and adult Bible fellowships, and who knows how many different ministries in the course of the week are involved, that you're involved with, to whatever degree, you've got a tool that God has given you, whether the name is known or unknown, so that you can be praying that God will do a great work in them, through them, for them, ultimately for the glory of God and the worthiness of God's kingdom strategy here. So now they have it. And in verse 11, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. And that's your first request. There's a cemetery in Concord, Massachusetts. The inscription there reads, Ezra Ripley, who came of the best pilgrim stock, lies here. He was worthy of his lineage. Now, when you and I realize that we are to be part of the spiritual lineage to the family of faith, we accept the fact that God is desiring to create a sense of true value in you and me. And so the redemptive work secured at Calvary, where the penalty of sin was paid, leads us into now what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, through us, 
where the power of sin is being broken in preparation for that future day when the presence of sin is removed in totality. So we're between the first and the second comings. But Paul has in mind, like a good scientist will, who's patenting his medicines, my father would be doing this, he would start with the end in mind. To this end, we also pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his, not your, calling. And now when you read that, and you've got your first request before you, and you're wondering, how do I go about praying for my family members, for that upcoming wedding and my extended family, for the people of this church, for the funeral that will be taking place in the midst of the days of this week? You move on then to this, this second request, and it's marked again by another may here, that you see that our God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And you extract that from verse 11 as well. But you want to stay practical here. And you're asking now, God, show me. I want to be effective within my prayer life. How do I go about praying this in such a way that can be used by you? Keep following the guidelines that are practically worked out by Paul here. It's your second May. And notice it continues to use the plural here. And here we find may fulfill every, not some, resolve for good. And every work of faith by his power. And we say, you know, Paul's a very consistent man. Because if you and I look carefully at what we see in our handout, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, you find him saying, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Not periodically. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Imagine him leading a life group. You get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. And we pray most earnestly night and day. And here you have it now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you. He's got this always thing going, doesn't he? And so there's a consistency about it. And this isn't abstract because Paul has gone through trials as well, persecutions as well. He has experienced the blow from the lapidary. He's not been exempt from the trials, and neither are we. But we bring a sense of incredible prayer dynamic into the corporate fellowship of faith here. And we allow the guidelines that Paul has worked out in his own personal experience to shape the way in which we go about praying for one another, whether it be our children, the people in life groups, adult Bible fellowships, the congregation as a whole, four services today, and on and on. But you use the two maze here as the means by which you are guided in the manner in which you're to go about praying for one another. May fulfill every resolve for good. Stop again. You see that there on the screen? May fulfill every Every resolve for good. Now, you and I know that Paul, who wrote Second Thessalonians, also wrote the book of Romans. And my favorite chapter of my favorite book, 
of my favorite book of all in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, you and I are told, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, you see that in 11a, according to his purpose, that our God may fulfill every resolve, purpose, it's for good. Now, as we've explored it again and again and again, as God works all things together for good, that does not mean that all things feel good. In other words, he can take some matters as the sovereign lapidary brings his blow upon this special jewel. He can take those crushing blows, so it seems, of life's experiences in order to shape something that you nor I could ever even possibly dream of because it's in accordance with his sovereign plan. Perfectly designed. The perfect blow. So that the good will be produced. So the moment you and I are saying, but God, this does not feel good, the sovereign lapidary is saying, but it is meant for the good That our God may fulfill every resolve for good. And furthermore, every work of faith. How? Not by your power, because we get tired. And generally, I assume on a Sunday morning, I'm looking at, in the three services of the morning, some very tired people who've battled their way through another week. Sleeves rolled up, yeah. But tired souls at the same time. There can be some like that. Richard Mylander understood that. He wrote, on my way to a conference in Colorado, I was driving uphill along a major interstate when I overtook a freight train going the same direction at a slower speed. The train was being pushed uphill by two locomotives that, was, that sounded as if they were straining at full power. He said, I'm a flatlander. Today he's not a highlander. I'm a flatlander from the Midwest. Question, is this how trains move in mountainous terrain? I'm moving uphill. A few minutes later, I gradually came alongside the front of the nearly long, mile-long string of cars And there I found five more locomotives pulling the train. Seven engines in all. Where I come from, I rarely see more than three. That train was a lesson for me. I had been under serious strain for some time. It was all uphill. I was feeling tired and was wondering whether I could persevere under the pressure How like God, I thought, when I am pushing a load uphill with all the strength I have and feel like my energy level is being depleted, he wants me to know that he is in the head, pulling with power far greater than mine. And now you take that and you work with that, that our God may fulfill every resolve, purpose 
for good, even if it doesn't necessarily feel good, in every work of faith. How? Not by your power. You see. By His power. Now, you take all that and you saturate it in prayer. John Bunyan wrote, you can do more than pray after you've prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Let me say that again. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. So if you're going uphill, as the Thessalonian people sure felt like it, He's reminding them this is not based upon your strength, your power, but rather you are tapping in prayerfully with this twofold emphasis upon the request of the maze, the source of ultimate, infinite, eternal, unchangeable strength of life. If the God of the universe can create something out of nothing, he can create something good out of something bad, and even when bad things happen, the lapidary can be at work creating something you nor I could possibly even envision, even in the midst of the sinful world in which, in which you and I live. Now you take that. And once you've got your requests that are truly guided by God's word in mind, in other words, you pray, and you pray God's word back to your God, incorporating the people that are on your heart at this time. It's the best way to pray. Then you move from the requests that you give to God in verse 11 to the results you are seeking from God in verse 12. And here you have it in verse 12. That as we pray for one another, secondly, I want you to note with me the results that we are to seek. And you say, what are the results? Look carefully now at verse 12, first part. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified. Pause. The first result pertains to the glory of God. Not your glory. Not my glory. God's glory. And notice that the glory is attached to the name of Christ. Not your name, not my name. Sometime when you're having your devotions, contrast Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. In Genesis 11, the great story of the Tower of Babel is told. What is fascinating is the purpose for constructing that tower. That they might make a name for themselves. In the very next chapter, God breaks in. He does the sovereign work. He breaks into the life experience of Abram at this point, And he delivers this promise. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. While in Genesis 11, verse 4, they were concerned with this phrasing, and let us make a name for ourselves. 
In Genesis chapter 12, what we find here is that God is saying, I will make your name great. Notice, he's not giving Abram the responsibility of making his name great. The glory is being given to God. And we become the vehicle by which God receives the glory. That the name of our Lord Jesus may what? Be glorified. Now, because you're drawing lines back and forth, I want you to look for the word glory or glorified and how it appears. Verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Speaking of the unbeliever. Look at verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Now verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified. And now you say, well, Gary, and where? It's almost as if it's almost as if Paul was listening in as Jesus in John chapter 17 was praying for his disciples. Because in John chapter 17, in our Lord's high intercessory prayer, in verse 21, you and I are told that he prayed that they may all, speaking you and me, be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. In verse 23, I in them, you in me. Stated where? In Jesus' prayer for others. How does this read? So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And you, in him, what we are now gaining, and I don't know how many books about prayer go into this in great depth, is this whole matter of in. In you, and you, in him, and the intimacy of the three-in-one Trinitarian matter of prayer in the high priestly John 17 passage where Jesus offers a prayer, Paul now likewise sees the intimate connection of the inness of it all and then says, may be glorified in you and you in him. There's to be this incredible dynamic sense of connectedness. Believer to believer. Believers to Jesus. Joseph Bailey wrote these words. Praying with other people has been a great encouragement to me. My greatest help in praying for others has come from realizing that God can bring to my mind those people and situations for which I ought to pray. He can stir my memory through associations. Something I see. Something I hear. Something I read. If I forget to pray for someone, he can remind me. Which means then that if you experience, I have, time and time and time again, mental drift. 
Could that at times be the Holy Spirit allowing you to drift to somewhere else and someone else? And instead of getting hard on yourself because all of a sudden you began to dream about spring training being only a few weeks away. Sorry, Super Bowl fans. You begin to think about, oh, those people in Florida that I know or those people in Arizona that I know. And you begin to pray for them. In other words, even use the drift as a means to continue to pray and bring them back, you see, to God. Look for opportunities, even when you are one-on-one. Joseph Bailey told about the time in which he was at an airport with Abe Vanderpie, who comes from this very area, came from this area, he's with Jesus now. And as we stood there with people moving past us, Abe said, let's pray. And his arm went around me and he committed me for the trip and for my life to the Lord. And it's the most satisfying departure from an airport I've ever had. Bear in mind then that in a country such as ours that values high levels of physical activity and movement, Paul, who could be distinguished by high levels of physical activity and movement, matched physical activity with spiritual intensity. The secularists may look at a person in prayer and say that doesn't seem to be productive because they associate productivity with activity. But the believer who understands the inness of this all understands that while the world might see a lack of physical activity at this particular point in time, God sees intense spiritual intensity. It's all coupled together in the inness of the prayerfulness and the collectedness of God's people. A church that truly cares for one another is a church that is in prayer for one another. So the first result you're looking for is you're praying for that person who just seems to be weighing down your heart right now. It's the glory of God. And then the second result you're praying for is the grace of God. And notice that it ends here in verse 12, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But what I want you to see here is that it reads according to, not merely out of, the grace of our God. You see, your God is infinite. Your God is eternal. Your God is unchangeable. There is nothing temporal, nothing finite, Nothing changeable about your God. The resources are endless. You take now the glory at the beginning of this 12th verse, coupled with the grace that's found at the end of this verse, and as you are bringing people before God, you are appealing not merely out of God's grace, but we are praying proportionately to grace, according to the grace of our God. And you do so with one definite article that couples all this together. Our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the divinity of Jesus Christ is once again appealed to in this verse. 
Harold Ockengay was the senior pastor of Park Street Church in Boston. He had a tremendous impact upon new evangelicalism in the 1940s, impacting a wide range of schools and churches decade by decade. Eventually, president of Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Gordon-Conwell is where Dr. Walter Kaiser eventually became president. A biographer states a human whirlwind like Ockengay could not contain his awakening efforts to Sundays alone. He sought revival beyond the walls of the church with a zeal that stood out even to the boldest pastors of his day. Billy Graham, once traveling through Boston, had occasion to stop by Park Street and call on Ockengay. It was an unplanned visit. Graham expected to find the pastor working on administrative matters or preparing one of his messages. Years later, Graham recalled to his surprise finding Ockengay underneath his rug. Quote, One day I called on him in his office at Park Street Church. Entering his office unexpectedly, I could hear him, but not see him. He was audibly praying through tears, crying out to the Lord. I found him under a throw rug that he had placed on himself in creating his own private prayer space. Ockengay was a mighty man of God, unquote. Tie all this together. When you create physical space, when you create spiritual space, when you seize the moments that other people waste, and instead of wasting them, you're investing them. You take a directory and you keep working it through and you say, oh Lord, now I remember what that person's going to be facing in the coming days. And perhaps you pull off the road for a minute or two and you pray and then continue on. Imagine what happens when a church of this size pulls all of this together and we are interceding for one another, praying for one another, looking out for one another. And the prayer matches the care. And when they merge together, what a dynamic is produced out of all this. Because you have a sense of inness. He and you, and you and him. And you're bringing glory to God in the process. And this is how we pray for each other. Let's stand together. Praising you and thanking you, Father. Sometimes we enter into those dry spots in life where there's a sense of prayerlessness that's become our new norm. Now, when that happens, Father, stir us to begin reading the prayers of Paul or go to 
Jesus' prayer in John 17. I'll just start reading those prayers back to you until we start prayerfully reading them back to you. And then we start adding names of people we're burdened for to those prayers as we prayerfully read them back to you. And we start to gain momentum. And Father, individually and collectively, we want to be people of momentum. Moving in the direction of Jesus Christ. Our Savior. Our Lord. Take now these two verses and imprint them upon our souls today, we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.